0: and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Back at the beginning of this season, we visited Teller City, a silver mining town that cropped up in the 1880s in Colorado's North Park, the valley where I grew up. It was a really bustling town for about eight years. Over a thousand people lived there at its height. If you remember, my dad, Jay, and I went and visited the town with local historian Rick Cornielson. And I asked Rick, where did all those people come from? And he had this really interesting answer.
1: You could say North Park was settled as, as Swedish. Uh, most of the old timers were, were sweet mm-hmm.
0: Did they know each other? Were they kind of drawing each other out here? Well, did it remind them such so as the
1: Carlstrom family? The oldest Karlstroms came from Sweden. They settled here, and they they brought their family, their brothers, and mm-hmm. after they settled, they they brought their kinfolk over, and they settled. And, Oh yeah, you I see they're making a living, right. having a good time, well, let's go. Yeah.
0: Right. So. Yeah. They probably liked the cold,
1: too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one being from Sweden, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, to Rick's mind, North Park's immigrant roots are mainly Swedish, and that sort of attraction of certain groups to settle in large numbers in one area, that happened all over the American West the Spaniards of the Southwest, the Mormons in Utah, Greeks, Germans, English. They came, sank roots, then wrote back, inviting friends to come along. But the thing was, some of those groups, like the Swedes in North Park, they were welcome to the new frontier. But some, well, some were not. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX This is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Over the next few episodes, we're going to talk about migration to the rural West and the reason that we might be able to learn a lot about why people move someplace and why they leave. Not all towns were like Teller City. They weren't all bust towns. Some were snuffed out intentionally because of the identity of people who moved there. But a lot of those stories have been whited out in the history books. But to understand the role of migration in ghost towning, it might be time to start unearthing it. Aaron Jones took on the task.
2: When you think of pioneers, you might think of Little House on the Prairie. Or Oregon Trail, that computer game you maybe played in the 90s. So when you think of pioneers, you might think of white people. But pioneers weren't all white. This is a tale of two towns, one in Wyoming and one in Colorado. The story is told by academics, reenactors, pilgrims, the Bible, and above all, Westerners. This is a story about the American dream. Part of the American dream, especially in the West, has to do with homesteading. So historian Jake Freefeld is gonna help tell this story because he specializes in homesteading.
3: The history of homesteading grows out of the Homestead Act of 1862, which Abraham Lincoln signed.
2: It was the middle of the Civil War. A year after the Homestead Act in 1863, enslaved people were emancipated. The Civil War ended. There
3: is this moment of hope. The Freedmen's Bureau is founded. The
2: Freedmen's Bureau, a government institution that funded some hospitals and schools for African Americans.
3: There's a hope for land reform in the South. Many enslaved people have been working on land their entire life. I think if they can get land that they own as back wages for generations enslaved. They can make a go of it in the South. So in 1866, still in the flesh
2: of optimism from founding the Freedmen's Bureau, Congress passed the Southern Homestead Act for anybody in the South who had supported the Union and formerly enslaved people.
3: Stay on that land for five years, prove up, and have the land forever. Well, for a number of reasons, the Southern Homestead Act didn't work out too well. Part of it was some of the lands needed clearing. So if you don't have much to begin with, you can't clear a bunch of timberland or swampland in Florida. And the other side of that is a breathtaking amount of white resistance and violence to this land reform. In the
2: 1870s, Congress succumbed to pressure from Southern whites and dissolved the Freedmen's Bureau and the Southern Homestead Act. All in all, Reconstruction—the attempts to make up for enslaving people for generations—lasted less than 15 years. Then, the South plunged into violence.
3: Yeah, the post-Reconstruction South is not a good place to be. It's violent. It is filled with increasingly segregationist laws as well. It becomes pretty clear that there's not going to be much to curb the violence, and that's when a lot of Black Americans begin moving, in large part, to Kansas at, this, at that period. There are some preachers in the South saying that Kansas was going to be this land of, of freedom, almost in this biblical sense. Like a, uh, like a new Canaan. I'm not sure exactly how, that, how Kansas becomes the place.
2: But it did. Formerly enslaved people followed their dreams and came to Kansas. Over the decades, they spread into Nebraska. Have you been to Kansas or Nebraska? Imagine, fields and prairie as far as you can see. Like all your dreams, your parents' dreams of space, of room to plant and grow, to be your own person, they can come true here. Among these families were the Speeces and the Taylors. They started farming in Nebraska and they prospered. But the sky over the plains is so big and so blue, everyone wanted to carve their piece out underneath it. And there are only so many times you can subdivide your farm among your children and their children. So, Nebraska, 1908. By now, the Civil War and chattel slavery have legally been over for 40 years. And here in western Nebraska, the Speeces and Taylors and other black families have been successfully farming for years. But they're running out of room. And there's another issue racism.
3: The family family were classically trained musicians. The children would travel and put on concerts. They show up to give a concert uh, one night, and the mostly white audience, or all white audience, is upset that it's not a minstrel show. The Speeces were tired of the racism,
2: and they were feeling constrained by limited land. So they got together with the Taylors and a few other Black families and made a plan. They were going to move just across the border to Wyoming and make a new home.
4: The town of Empire, or let's start over right there, because it was never really a town.
2: That's historian and anthropologist Todd Gunther. Also, what a name for a place, Empire.
4: The community of Empire had its origins in 1908 when several families of uh, Black immigrants from Nebraska moved up into the Sheep Creek Valley and claimed homesteads and started farming and ranching in that area right on the Nebraska-Wyoming border.
2: They weren't after building a town with a main street. It didn't have a grocery store or a newspaper. Jake and Todd are adamant that it was a community, not a town. But I'm not so sure. Remember Sam Western, the economics historian from earlier in this series? He says a place is a town if it has a post office and a school. And guess what? Empire had both of those things, plus two churches. But Jake and Todd have a point too, because there wasn't a main street or like a town square or any kind of central cluster of buildings. It was really spread out and rural. But whether it was a town or a community, what matters is that it was a dream fulfilled. And this eastern Wyoming place the Speeces and Taylors chose, it's idyllic. Softly rolling hills, green crops, the odd milk cow mooing for supper. In the late summer, sunflowers line the roads like they're happy to see you, like you're welcome here.
4: What they were raising was the same kind of stuff that all homesteaders raised. You know, they tried to do a little dryland farming and a few cattle and and pigs and horses and mules and chickens, things like that. But the homesteads back in those days just weren't big enough for people to really make a living.
2: I guess, like, a question that I have is, when these folks decided that it wasn't going to work in Nebraska because of lack of land and it sounds like bigotry against them, Why did they decide to keep farming at all? Like, why didn't they just move to a city or something?
4: That's what we call the agrarian dream. You know, Thomas Jefferson thought that the whole continent would be peopled by yeoman farmers. People thought that... Farming was a good and godly way to live and that in the cities there was crime and pollution and lots of misbehavior and changing social structures and things like that. And people saw a kind of nobility in farming and they had those skills, the the Spees and Shores and Taylor families, the black families at Empire had those agricultural skills because They'd learned all of those crafts in slavery and brought them westward with them. And they didn't like the crowds and they didn't like factory jobs and things like that. And they wanted to get back out onto the farms and be in control of their own destiny.
2: Being in control of your own destiny We'll get back to Empire Wyoming soon, but let's stay on this wistful farming ideal for a second. This dream. Remember how lots of African Americans were leaving the South after Reconstruction because it was a dangerous place to be? They left in droves for the North, for the Midwest, and for the West. So Wyoming was hardly the only place in the West where black pioneers were making a go of it. At the same time as all this was happening in Wyoming, down south, in Colorado, there was a man who was trying to make his own agrarian dream happen.
5: My name is O.T. Jackson, and I'm a self-made man.
2: Full disclosure, O.T. Jackson was born in 1862. That's not O.T. Jackson. That's reenactor John Thomas in the role of O.T., John volunteers with the Black American West Museum, and during non-COVID times, he performs at museum events. John, as O.T., is wearing a felt hat and a pocket watch in his Longmont, Colorado backyard full of roses on a gorgeous September day. It's fun to watch him. He's animated, and hearing O.T.'s story in his voice feels like insider access to something impossible. John slash O.T. is telling stories of long ago. O.T. Jackson was originally from Ohio, but like lots of other African Americans, he followed his dreams west. He owned a restaurant in Boulder. He was involved in politics.
5: I was interested in the political environment in Denver, trying to improve the lives of Negroes. I was a member of the Negro Business League. The Negro Business League was actually a national organization. It was started by Booker T. Washington, and there were chapters all over the country. Booker T. also wrote a book, Up From Slavery, and he talked about the fact that, you know, even though slavery disappeared and we were free, most of us wound up taking care of somebody else's house, or cleaning up, or cutting somebody's hair, or washing their clothes. And what Booker T. wanted was for us to uh, set up our own little communities. So I tried to get the Negro Business League to do that. And for some reason, they never really supported the idea. So I said, well, deal with you guys, I'm going to do it on my own. <laughs> so O.T. and his wife
2: Minerva bought 320 acres in eastern Colorado, not far from the border with Wyoming, and under that same wide blue sky, few trees or structures to interrupt the view of long plains. Deerfield is on a highway east of Greeley, Colorado. The road ribbons through fields with tall, green crops. Now, in summer, I slow down to pass spidery farm vehicles rumbling on the shoulder. There's a green Department of Transportation sign that just says, Deerfield, and I slam on my brakes. It's a dusty parking area next to two piles of weathered wood that clearly used to be structures, and a dirt road disappearing between them. I'm meeting George June here. Hi, Dr. June. Hi, I'm George. I'm Erin. Nice to meet you. Hey, here. <laughs> um, you yeah. So, oh, thank you. you got a
3: hat?
2: Um, I actually don't have a hat, but I have tons of sunscreen. Oh, okay. Um, I'm gonna switch out my mic real quick. Yeah.
1: I'm Dr. George June, J-U-N-N-E, and I'm in Africana Studies at the University of Northern Colorado.
2: Inspired by Booker T. Washington, and maybe by the 20 or so other Black communities in Colorado at the time, George says
1: O.T. Jackson had a dream. He wanted to have a prosperous African-American community. And he did everything he could. There are people who came out here that were so poor, they could not do anything, and so he would loan them money so they could file on their homestead. And some of them had to walk part of the way from Denver because they didn't have money to get here. They couldn't take the train, so that's how desperate these people were. And they saw this as this is going to be the way that I can um, become a full-fledged citizen and have a little bit of power, and can pass this on to the children. So that's what that's what this was. A lot of people thought that this was all about.
2: Why is it called Deerfield?
1: Oh, because the man who decided to, who named it that, and it's spelled D-E-A-R, not D-E-E-R. He said, because this land will be dear to us. And so that's the name that stuck.
5: Now, what we did there was dry land farming. You know, you take a seed, you put it in the ground, you pray for rain. (laughs) We didn't have a river nearby. We didn't have irrigation. We We didn't have any of that fancy stuff. The first winter was rough, Uh, it was really cold. I mean, we had five horses, and two of them froze to death. We had one wooden structure, which was my house, and the rest of the folks had uh, lived in teepees and dugouts and made their shelters however they wanted to make them comfortable.
1: And when folks first came out here, the first winter, 1910, 1911 winter, some people did not have the money or the, or the way to build their cabin. So, the first winter, there were some people who dug holes in the hillside and lived in the hillside for the winter. That's how desperate they wanted to own their own home. But and it
2: seems like that would have worked really well in terms of insulation and things like that.
1: Well, but you don't have a door, you just have a tarp hanging there. And oh. so. <laughs>
5: And out in the Eastern Plains, you know, they don't have trees out there. So if we wanted to burn something, we had to get sagebrush and cow chips and anything that we could burn. <laughs> and, and, but we stuck it out. Uh, we made it through that first winter, and uh, Deerfield grew. We had uh, potatoes and corn and cabbage and rye and beans and turnips and, melons and sugar beets oats and alfalfa I mean, we had uh, cattle and chicken and horses and hogs and geese ducks and turkeys i mean we were doing it we had a general store we had a filling station we had two churches we had a school we had a boarding house we had a cafeteria i mean people would come from miles around on sunday touch with us you know and i ran the i ran the kitchen so you know you know it was good uh and you know we had a dance hall <laughs> you know
1: so there was one building that was the church, and it was also on Saturday night, a dance hall. So we had lots of fun on Saturday night. And the people. Squire Brockman. If you look to the picture of him, you wouldn't think that much of him because he was kind of a small guy, huh. and uh, kind of hunched over, didn't look very good but the ladies loved him.
6: <laughs> Why? Was
1: we he don't know. Charismatic? <laughs> yeah, apparently so. <laughs> Some people say was married a few times. And The last time he was married, was, uh, he was in the 70s and he married a 20-year-old and they would stay married for about a year before she ran off. <laughs> <laughs> were now,
2: most of the people here from Denver or where were they from?
1: All over the place, okay. all over the country. Many of them were from the Denver area. Sometimes they came to Denver from places in the south. Some of them, their uh, parents were slaves and uh, so forth. So they came from everywhere. And a couple of them were born slaves too.
2: Oh wow. Yeah. So they must have been on the older side by 1910 or so.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, because slavery ended in 1865. Yeah. So, there so would they would be.
2: In, at least in their 50s? Yeah. That's like, an intru- that's like, it's interesting to think about, like, starting a whole new life mm-hmm. at, in your 50s out in the Colorado Plain.
1: Yeah, and some of them had relatives out here, and others, uh, Colorado had the reputation of not being as racist as many other communities on the East Coast, particularly the South, and also in the North.
2: The North. Of course, he means the broader north of the United States, but as Deerfield triumphed over its first winter and grew just to the north, less than 200 miles away, the people of Empire, Wyoming were
0: facing problems. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all.
4: Right from the earliest days, there were racial tensions. And whenever something would disappear, somebody would misplace an item or lose an item, the black families would be accused right away of stealing.
2: There were threats of violence, of white mobs coming for black people, for their families. But a sort of savior came to town, somebody who had ideas for empire. In
3: 1911 is when Russell Taylor arrives, and he is the, the driver who really create, helps create the community culture in empire. He founds the church, he takes over the schools. He is the, the glue that holds empire together.
2: Russell Taylor was a minister and a teacher.
4: And after doing that for several years, he brought his wife and their children out to join his brothers in Empire in, in Wyoming and became the, the teacher and the postmaster and and held several other prominent positions in the community as well. He was doing a lot to try and, and build respect for the Empire community. They were living the American dream, you know, taking raw land and trying to turn it into what, you know, in the New Testament, they call the city on the hill.
2: The city on the hill. This is a sermon that Jesus gives in Matthew. He says his followers are, quote, the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. Those words are a really big part of the American dream. Ever since 1630, when colonizer John Winthrop spoke to his followers on board the ship to New England, he dreamed of a city on a hill.
4: For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world.
2: And here, Reverend Taylor had a town called Empire. He knew what his work was. But... As he wrote letters to the editors of newspapers across the Mountain West, as he taught students how to read, as he spoke at religious conferences, as he used everything he had to try to make Empire a model community and the world a better place, that Western seam of racism became even more exposed. Russell had a brother named Baseman Taylor. Baseman had farmed for a while, but he sold his equipment. By 1913, he worked in a restaurant in Torrington.
3: At some point, his family became concerned that he was a danger to himself. He was suffering from, was probably depression, and wanted him put in a hospital, I believe for that time it was called, for the mentally insane. They get the Goshen County Sheriff to come get him. He is beaten, and then he dies in the custody and is killed by the Goshen County uh, Sheriff. Basemen hadn't
2: committed any crime or violence. This was a lynching. Between 1904 and 1920, white Wyomingites lynched at least five black men. That means that in those years, Wyoming had the number one lynching rate in the country.
4: So I'm not talking about like the the law and order lynchings in Laramie in the 1860s or 70s, we're, we're talking about racially motivated lynchings, the murder at the
5: hands of a mob.
2: After that, Russell Taylor poured himself into justice for his brother.
4: It broke his heart and infuriated him, as it did most of the other black individuals and families who lived there and knew what had really happened. And Russell actually filed suit against the county and the sheriff in an attempt to get some justice uh, when the, the criminal court failed to do anything about the case. But his lawyers told him after Few depositions and things, that he could spend a lot of money pursuing this, but would never win the case because he was a black man.
2: Of course, this racism was present across the country. But there weren't many black people in the West. Russell Taylor was trying to change that, but Empire was isolated in a sea of hostility and its citizens were getting tired.
5: Meanwhile, in Deerfield... By 1920, we had 20,000 acres under cultivation. There were 700 of us there farming the land. And, uh, you know, we had houses and cars and fur coats, and we were just doing really well. But, you know, it didn't last. The first thing that happened is the war ended. World War One ended in 1918, and... Uh, The price for crops, you know, went through the floor, so that hurt us. Second of all, we had a big drought, you know, the rain didn't come anymore. Thirdly, the depression hit, you know, and then everything turned into a dust bowl.
1: With the dust bowl coming in, everything in eastern Colorado, into Kansas, Nebraska, just blew away. And so all the land just picked up and just blew away. I think one quarter of the farms in the United States went under, and that's what happened.
5: And gradually, people couldn't hang on to their property. They lost it, turned it over to the, the banks, or sold it. And gradually, they started leaving Deerfield. I tried to advertise the property as a resort area uh, to have people come and vacation and relax. But, you know, it's kind of hard because there's nothing but flat land and no trees. But uh, that didn't succeed. So gradually, uh, Deerfield uh, became extinct.
2: I think about these, some of these families that you mentioned that came out that were so poor that they had to walk part of the way. Um, what happened to some of those folks when, you know, the 30s and the Dust Bowl came?
1: Uh, some them just gave up and they went to Denver and went to other places and stayed there. And that's, that's all that they could do. Because, so did they
2: lose everything?
1: Yeah, they just left things.
2: Perhaps the descendants of Deerfielders live in Denver now or somewhere else in the West. Or if they're not in the West, their roots are Western. Their ancestors were pioneers. And now the Black American West Museum and others, including George June, are working to raise awareness about Deerfield and save its remaining structures. They've already poured funds into stabilizing O.T. Jackson's house. School groups come on field trips from all across the Front Range. One model for what Deerfield could be one day is Nicodemus, Kansas, a former black town that's now a national historic site with a visitor center and a homecoming celebration every summer. So the direction said to turn left in Henry, Nebraska. I'm driving down a lonely country road right on the Wyoming-Nebraska border. It's August, late in the day. Far-away wildfire smoke tinges everything hazy, makes the sun seem closer to setting than it is. There are sunflowers everywhere. I'm looking for a cemetery. And I'm driving back to see if I missed it somewhere. After the murder of Baseman Taylor, Empire dissolved. One or two at a time, people left. No one knows exactly what the population of empire was, but historians think at its height, around 1915, 40 to 60 people might have lived there. By 1930, only four people were left, and the Dust Bowl quickly swept those four away. No one knows where all those people went exactly. Todd Gunther has spoken with descendants in Casper, Wyoming, but those folks have since passed away. In any case, like the Deerfielders, Anybody descended from the people of Empire have their roots in the West. They're integral parts of the Western story. Don't think I'm seeing a
6: cemetery,
2: though. On site in eastern Wyoming, though, little remains of Empire anymore, except for this cemetery. But I can't find it anywhere, just these bucolic fields feckened with corn. I turn around, and it's right there. the Sheep Creek Cemetery inside the fence is the white people, the white I guess settlers or whoever that are buried here and then outside of the fence are black settlers and the only thing that I can see is I don't know maybe like 50 yards away from the cemetery proper there's a little Bitty white square with a cross next to it. So I'm gonna go investigate. For years, most people in Wyoming didn't know that Empire existed. And while I've been working on this story, most Wyomingites I've spoken to still don't. There was a thick silence around Empire for decades. Todd Gunther's white, and he says when he started researching the town, some of his colleagues resisted. Have you encountered any resistance in Wyoming to your research or your talks about this?
4: (laughs) Yes. When I was in grad school, I had people that tried to get me fired from my job and kicked out of grad school, and they didn't want to hear all of this. They preferred to hear the happy history and uh, the censored version of history, the whitewashed version of history. And um, so that, that's been a, a, an ongoing issue. I've been called a traitor to my race.
2: But in 2016, the Wyoming State Museum hosted an exhibit about empire that has since turned into a traveling exhibit. In addition to Jake Freefeld's and Todd's research and the museum exhibit, there's also a new empire historical marker now at a rest stop on I-25 near Wheatland. The marker was just erected last summer. Okay, so... Here's a grave. It says Afro-American baby. I can just find two empire graves. That is... Graves outside the fence, where black people were allowed to be buried. The two spread far apart, like the living were making room for generations to come. Like there would be other families, new families, crowding in between. But there's only these two graves, far apart from one another, in a cornfield. How are we supposed to think about the extinction of a short-lived community? People were here. People lived here. I thought Carla Slocum might be able to help me think about this. She's an anthropologist at the University of North Carolina. She wrote a book called Black Towns, Black Futures, The Enduring Allure of a Black Place in the American West. She made time for me to ask some bumbling questions about places like Empire and Deerfield.
6: You've used the term ghost town a lot. The ghost town to me suggests a kind of place that is a that has a void. It's a place that doesn't have anything to offer. It's a place that, that was and doesn't have anything that it offers us today. And so even if a place that formally existed, was incorporated before, but is no longer formally existing and is not no longer incorporated and maybe has no physical residence in it anymore, it still still is a place that has a lot of significance to people who have an affiliation with that place.
2: So, all these towns we're talking about in this whole series, not just Empire and Deerfield, but Walden, too, and all the shrinking towns in the rural west, they're not voids, and they won't become voids. They're important. They have meaning. Maybe it's time to rethink what success means.
6: The very popular fascination with black towns is about what they were, that they have these really remarkable histories. The word remarkable is often used to describe them. They are places where people of African descent, black people came together, created these communities. And in many cases, they were vibrant places. They were places that provided people a sense of security, a relative sense of security, I should say and were part of their quest for achieving freedom and safety during the Jim Crow era.
2: Carla says black towns are success stories, whether they're former black towns or current ones.
1: Deerfield was a successful, highly successful farming community, and you can't tell it now. After the Dust Bowl, it just disappeared but it was a highly successful farming community. Because it had bumper crops. Because it grew
2: so much food that in addition to what they sold, Deerfielders donated food to black orphanages in Denver. Because there was a blacksmith who was a ladies' man. Because there were dances. Because there were places to find God. Because there was a man who had a dream and did everything he could to make it happen.
5: It was, a, it was a wonderful dream. It was a good dream. It was a great project, and it was also a dear dream.
2: O.T. Jackson died in the 1940s in his house in Deerfield. He was the last person living there. Why do you think it's important to tell the story of places like Deerfield?
1: Oh, that's part of a good part of history. I mean, it's fantastic history with these pioneers, no experience, coming out here just saying, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take the big chance and doing it and succeeding.
3: There has been this whitewashing of Western history and to a certain extent Midwestern history as well. This tells the story of generations of African Americans who some came out of slavery, went in their lives from being owned to owning land
2: People think of myths as something that's not true, but a myth is something that's deeply true. It's so true, it tells us who we are. And myths come from stories.
6: You know, if we're going to tell the American story, and if we're going to tell American history, we need to have it complete, and there are so many silences around the Black presence That this Blacktown story is one of those parts that helps add to and round out the American story. Do you ever think about
2: all those people in America dreaming? Dreaming of freedom, safety. Dreaming that they can use their skills toward dignity and independence. Dreaming of sunflowers, a wide blue sky, endless room to be your own person. Imagine two towns, houses clustered together against the wild plains, night falls. And people dream.
0: That was Erin Jones. And I think she makes such a good point about rural places in the West becoming beacons of light for those in search of safety and a place to raise their families. It's a draw that still makes the American West lure for immigrants today. That dream of a little cabin in a small town with a view of the Rocky Mountains, that dream is very much alive and well. People from all over the world cherish that dream. In the next episode of The Modern West, we'll hear the story of one dreamer whose father brought her to my hometown of Walden from Mexico when she was little. I honestly
4: don't see me living out of Walden. It's a great place for the kids to grow. And it's just, I don't know, I I like the peace with the people, the community, how When you get to know them, they take care of you, you take care of them, and they're just, it's that family thing that you're not going to find anywhere else.
0: Now, with no nursing home around, Walden's elderly rely on Rocio to help take care of their most basic needs. But she says more and more Latino families are moving away. Do you have a family story of immigrating to a small town in the American West? Share it on social media. We're at Modern West Pod. You can see photos of the Deerfield and Empire ghost towns at our website, themodernwest.org. I'm Melody Edwards. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Micah Schweitzer is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.